Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. We have absolutely worked on some of the most groundbreaking deals with enormous impact on the market. From inception, we've been working with clients who've revolutionized tech and the world, really. The next technology disruptor is only as influential as the deal that launched it. And if you're counsel to hundreds of those management teams over time, you also get extraordinary insight into what might be around the corner. Some of the very best companies were formed during these economic downturns. So I'm truly excited by all of the companies that are being formed now out of necessity. I'm actually quite optimistic for what we're going to see in a few years after these companies get formed, get financed, and, and grow. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Even the most ingenious technologies won't go far without a solid legal foundation and a forward-thinking framework that will help it scale, and today's guest knows all about that. I want to welcome Cindy Hess to the show. Cindy is a corporate partner at Fenwick, and for over 10 years, she served as the co-chair of the firm's startup and venture capital group. Over the course of her practice, Cindy has counseled technology companies on a broad range of corporate transactional matters. She's worked with a wide range of high-tech clients, including some of the hottest and most innovative companies in mobile SaaS and social media. Cindy's been honored and recognized with several industry-related awards, including being named one of the recorder's top 10 most trusted corporate counselors and one of the top women leaders in tech law. She was also named to the Legal 500's Hall of Fame of the Venture Capital and Emerging Companies category. Cindy was the recipient of the Women in Business Law Award for Best in Technology, and the Silicon Valley Business Journal named her as one of the leading women of influence in Silicon Valley. Cindy is a member of the State Bar of California and New York. She received her undergrad from Princeton and her JD from Cornell, and she's from my hometown, Westport, Connecticut. We sat down to talk about Cindy's incredible career working on some of the biggest deals in history and what she sees for big tech deals in 2023 and beyond. Let's enter the arena with Cindy Hess. So I started my career in New York and then moved to the Pacific Northwest where I was an associate and then a partner at a large firm based there. It was called Perkins Coie. And I moved to Silicon Valley with my family to help start the Bay Area offices for that firm. And then Fenwick recruited me to join the team here. But that process actually took a long time. It was in the middle of the dot-com bubble burst, bursting in 2001. And Fenwick took a huge risk on me because I was actually quite new to Silicon Valley. I didn't grow up here. I didn't go to school here. And I had hardly any clients. 
But I guess they saw potential in me. And because, you know, once I was on the Fenwick platform, I, I really blossomed here and I saw the benefits of a true full service law firm that could meet all the needs of our tech company clients. And the rest is history. We have a lot of listeners from all different roles around the ecosystem of fast-growing private and public companies. So for those that don't have a good in-depth knowledge of the firm, what does Fenwick do? So we are a full-service law firm focused on serving the needs of tech and life sciences companies, as well as the investors who fund those companies. This year marks Fenwick's 50th anniversary. In this time, we've grown into a firm of more than 400 lawyers, 1,000 employees, We have offices throughout the U.S. in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Seattle, Santa Monica, and New York, which has actually grown to more than 110 lawyers since opening six years ago. And we recently opened an office in D.C. earlier in the year to support clients in antitrust and other regulatory areas. Over the past five years, we've helped some of the world's most recognized tech companies become and remain market leaders. Let's see, uh, among these trailblazers were Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, all, of course, instrumental in revolutionizing the tech industry. The firm was founded in 1972 in Silicon Valley by four visionary lawyers who were actually only fifth-year associates at the New York firm of Cleary Gottlieb, who moved to the West Coast on the belief that technology would revolutionize the business world. And they wanted to be on the ground floor of this and pioneer the legal work to support those tech companies. And uh, one little funny anecdote, when the firm worked on the incorporation of Apple, we famously refused stock as a payment for our services. (laughs) Oh, my God. Instead, insisting on $500 in cash to pay our fees. Yeah, I can relate. You know, you start a company and you're kind of like, hey, you know, we'll take stock. And most of the time it ends up as wallpaper. And uh, that one could have been a game changer, but it sounds like Fenwick has changed the game. And the four the four people who started that thinking that technology would change the world, um, I think they were onto something. So what makes Fenwick different from some of the other firms out there doing this kind of work? Well, culture is the biggest differentiator for Fenwick. A lot of firms say that, but it truly drives us forward as a business. We are focused on collaboration internally, and we compete externally. So we're really working as a team here. We're valuing transparency and collaboration and operate as one firm and team as compared with many other law firms that are organized around individual offices or even siloed teams within a certain practice area. We don't do that. We encourage and reward open and clear communication and knowledge sharing, which gives our clients the benefit of thought leadership across all of our practice areas. And we have intentionally kept our growth organic and manageable. So while our firm is is quite large and it's large enough to handle some of the biggest and most complex deals in the world, the cases and our IP portfolios as well, we are also small enough that we know each other. So when a client of mine has a legal issue that's outside of my own personal expertise, I know exactly who in the firm is the best person to help. And not only that, we possess a deep understanding of the technology and science behind our clients' businesses. So our lawyers work with clients on how to make their products work, sometimes even before a legal framework has even been created. So the law comes alongside the business strategy. And for example, we worked with clients like Airbnb and Uber from their from their very beginnings. 
Yeah, it's so key to know the technology or what is your role at Fenwick and who is your your client base? So I'm a corporate partner and I've been the co-chair of the startup and venture capital practice for over 10 years. I joined the firm about 20 years ago as a partner and I work with clients, invest in long-term relationships with startups founders and investors, oftentimes representing founders and their investors multiple times across several companies. I've been counseling some of the most innovative companies in the consumer tech, software, social media spaces through the critical phases of of their life cycle from formation and launch through the key milestones and financings to, to their eventual exit. Some of my clients have included Sixth Sense, which is a unicorn software company in the marketing and sales space, Nextdoor.com, which is a social media, social network for neighborhoods, Doctor on Demand, which was one of the first telehealth companies, GitLab, GoPro, Fitbit, Peloton, Love Every, Madison Reed, Trip Actions, and uh, Impossible Foods. So I do corporate investment work for American Express when they invest in technology and fintech companies and several uh, venture capital firms as well. Very cool. Is there a part of the practice right now that's stronger than others? There's obviously a lot of volatility in the market and the IPO window's been largely shut. What are you seeing right now? What's strongest in your opinion? Right now we're seeing a pretty heavy influx of people starting new things. This is uh, consistent with what we're seeing also in our venture survey. Um, there's a healthy flow of early stage companies sort of in the you know Series A and Series B stage, companies in software, digital health, mental health, and lots of other areas. You know, 2022 has been somewhat of a re- regression to the mean since we all know 2021, you know, had a huge spike in volume. But at least for now, it looks like the activity we're seeing is more akin to what we were seeing back in 2019 and the first part of 2020. For you, um personally, did you kind of wake up and did you know you wanted to be an attorney right away? Or like what skill set that you have, do you think kind of took you to that path? So I kind of fell into it. I don't think I always wanted to be a lawyer, although my dad was a lawyer and I actually think it fits well for me and my personality, but I did fall into it. Actually, my father passed away when I was in college and the company he worked for would pay for graduate school if I completed it by the time I was 24 years old. So I went, instead of getting a job, I went straight through from college to law school. So again, I was inspired by my dad, but I didn't necessarily think I would absolutely become a practicing lawyer. And and then once I worked in a large firm during my summer job in law school, I knew I wanted to work for a law firm versus another company. And I really enjoyed the camaraderie, solving for problems. And I also knew I wanted to be on the business side. So becoming a corporate lawyer was a way for me to do both. And working with startups fits me best because I really get to work with companies from the ground floor and help them build something. And you must have some like amazing stories, but what are some of the, some of the biggest deals that have shaped maybe your career and, and Fenwick? Well, we have absolutely worked on some of the most groundbreaking deals with enormous impact on the market. You know, from inception, we've been working with clients who've revolutionized tech and the world, really. As I mentioned, we incorporated Apple in 1976. We negotiated one of the first software agreements for Microsoft with then, you know, 19-year-old entrepreneur Bill Gates. We took Oracle public in 1986. 
and then followed on with lots of other IPOs, including Electronic Arts, Symantec, Intuit, Peloton. We represented Facebook, and it's you know one of the most anticipated debuts of a public company of all time. It was the largest uh, tech IPO and the third largest ever in U.S. history, raising $16 billion. We represented WhatsApp and its sale to Facebook. That happened actually over a a long weekend, and we were counsel at the time to both Facebook and WhatsApp. So we ultimately ended up, you know, working with WhatsApp on that transaction. Let's see, we represented Fitbit in its IPO, and then and then its acquisition by Google. A more recent IPO we did was Coinbase, which happened in 2021, which was a watershed moment for cryptocurrency companies. Sort of the most recent huge deal that we're currently working on is the Figma deal in its pending $20 billion acquisition by Adobe, which is the biggest ever takeover of a private software company. And that company we worked with since its inception, all of its financing rounds, and last year, now its acquisition this year. We're leading also in startup financings, representing 3,000-plus startup and emerging growth companies, 200 of which are in the billion-dollar-plus valuation. So it's hard to just name those all, but we're counseled to more than half of the unicorns valued at over $10 billion, and uh, we're top three most active in the U.S. for representing emerging companies. Very cool. Was there ever a deal or moment in your career that was transformative for you personally? Yes. I worked with GoPro early on in my in my tenure at Fenwick. And GoPro led to so many other great client representations at Fenwick. And how I got to work with GoPro is, is interesting. I was introduced to the founder of GoPro when he was, you know, like a surfer dude, actually living in a van. But I was introduced to him by an investment banking friend who I'd met on a deal when I was living and working in the Pacific Northwest. I worked on a snowboard IPO, one of the first snowboard IPOs, actually. And the, my friend who introduced me to Nick Woodman, who founded GoPro, thought that there was some overlap between, you know, my snowboarding experience and what GoPro was trying to do. So he he made that introduction and we worked with GoPro, incorporated it and did its financings and then its IPO back in 2014. But that led to working with so many other consumer tech companies, including Fitbit and Peloton and so many others. We were on um, GoPro at the time. And, oh, and Peloton. So we yeah. were in there together without knowing each other. What has your experience been being a woman attorney in the tech world over such a long period of time with such a long track record of success? It's gotten so much better over time, but it used to be that I was always the only woman in the room and at client meetings. Sometimes it's still the case, but most of the time it's not. And sometimes it even worked to my advantage. I mean, hey, I was the only person in the room not wearing tan khakis and a blue button-down shirt, so it made me more memorable. People could remember what I said. But even when I joined Fenwick, I was one of the only women partners in my group back then. This is, again, very early 2000. So I had to keep reminding myself to speak up and not hold back. Now we have you know, many female partners in the group, and it's been you know, really wonderful to see that growth. Yeah. I mean, a, a bit of a trailblazer with all the, the cool companies you've worked with and how you've been able to help them transform and build value. It's just very cool. Do you have a mentor that has helped you in your career that you looked up to? I've had a few. Um, when I started my 
practice in, in New York City. There was a senior female associate who I worked closely with, and she helped me remain very calm under fire. She was calm. She made lists. She turned to organization when work started to feel heavy and overwhelming. She truly helped me through the first couple of years of my practice, which can be tough. And then over the course of my career, I've had a number of mentors, uh, the head of the corporate practice at my old law firm, Perkins Coie, and then several partners here at Fenwick who've been mentors to me over the years, including Gordy Davidson, a partner and former chair at Fenwick, who was someone I always wanted to emulate for his demeanor and presence. I truly admired the way he analyzed problems. He was also always a straight shooter, and I admired the way he counseled his clients and delivered both good news and bad news to people. Just the exposure to senior people like that in your career is so critical. And I think the only good thing about COVID was that some young people had a chance to get on these Zoom calls with like senior management and see how folks like yourself would like operate and handle themselves. And doing that in person is is key. And that's how you get mentors and that's how you get to be successful, right? Absolutely. This is an apprentice business. Cindy has a unique view into the capital markets, and with the incredible activity we saw in 2021 and the subsequent slowdown in 2022, I wanted to know what her predictions are for 2023. So in the overall market, things have slowed down you know, after the hype of the pandemic, and we're seeing a return to pre-pandemic levels of activity. So as I'm sure you remember, at the very beginning of the pandemic, things came to a screeching halt for a few weeks as people got their bearings, and then we had all these clients who were considering the PPP loans from the government, and we were working around the clock furiously figuring out those new laws and regulations. At the, at the end of the day, very few of our clients took those loans. And then we went into this extremely active two-year period of 20 and 21 with everything firing on all cylinders between the extremely active IPO and SPAC market, huge numbers of M&A transactions, and the massive number of private company financings, and we could barely, barely keep up. But now we've returned to a normal pre-pandemic level. The deals have slowed, but not stopped, definitely not stopped, and just slowing to these more normal levels. So I think this year we're going to see a lot of companies that didn't need to raise money over the last year or so looking and needing to raise money. So I expect this to be an active year. I expect there to be quite a number of down round financings. Um, We're already seeing some of that. But most of our companies will get the funding they need, although not necessarily on the terms they were hoping for, or at least not at the 2021 valuation levels. And in terms of the IPO pipeline, we have 11 clients who have submitted confidential filings with the SEC, sort of waiting for the market. And a number of other companies that we work with are gearing up and getting ready to do the same. So there definitely is a backlog of great companies who want to get out into the public markets, but just waiting for the opportunity. Yeah. It always seems like when things go through a period like this, there's like a valuation disconnect and and companies are kind of like, well, wait a minute, you know, last year you could kind of get this valuation and now you kind of can't. There's a period of mental adjustment. In terms of the Silicon Valley Venture Capital Survey, I had seen that for the first time just a couple of days ago. It's really well done. How long have you been publishing that? And what popped out to you in kind of the third quarter edition of it? Sure. Thanks for taking a look at it. We have been publishing this report 
and I think we were the first to do so for 20 years. It started when the first dot-com bubble burst. We had some time on our hands and figured it'd be, you know, put it to good use and start to measure and track the market for venture financings, both in terms of valuations and the other deal terms. And on our most recent survey, we show that the number of financings, like in the third quarter compared to the second quarter, were relatively flat. And by the way, the number of overall financings in 2022, while they're second to 2021, they're still the highest number of deals, at least since the time we've been tracking it. So 2022 was down from 21, but it's otherwise, you know, a high performing year. There's been a big uptick in Series A financings in Q3. And several other metrics were unchanged from quarter to quarter, with the exception being that the the market drop in across all series in the average price per share increase for companies raising funds in the third quarter versus their prior financing round. So we have what's called a venture capital barometer, and it shows the average you know, share price versus the last round. And the average share price increase was 122% in Q3 versus 174% in Q2. So that's obviously a big drop. While this reflects a notable drop quarter to quarter in the last five years, so measuring Q4 2017 through third quarter 2022, the average share price increase among companies we track was 119%. So 122% for third quarter is just basically a return to normal. Yep. If I'm understanding that the right way, the price increases are still there. It's just not as dramatic as it was. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. No need to hit the panic button. Yeah. I mean, 92% of rounds were up rounds, 3% were flat and 5% were down. And that 5% of deals that were down rounds has been steady over the last several quarters. That number, I mean, that percentage could go up in the next coming quarters, but you know, as, as we've seen, the vast majority of, of financings are still up rounds. Yeah, I thought 5%, you know, I would have guessed it was a lot higher than that. That was an upside surprise to me. Anyway, Cindy, I had another question. What mistakes might a group of founders make from a legal perspective when they're kind of going through that phase? And how can that kind of trip them up in the future if they don't do it right in the beginning? One thing I tell I tell founders is when they're looking to raise money that they should really look at the terms that they're getting holistically. And so the highest, you know, the term sheet with the highest valuation isn't always the best deal for them. So there are other terms in the financing that can sort of set the stage, not only for this financing, but for all future financings. So they really do need to look at the terms holistically and in many cases not take the highest bidder because that's just one one part of it. Yep, for sure. And then as companies are getting ready to go public, where do companies get tripped up in that process from a legal perspective? What should be the top few things that they think of when we're going public that they need to get right? Sure. Well, I really think that companies should try to act like public companies in sort of a dress rehearsal sort of way before they actually are in the run-up to the last stages of becoming a public company. So like even in the year or two before, 
And that includes building out their board with enough independent members to fill the needed board committees. It also includes building out a board for diversity reasons as well, both gender and racial diversity, and also setting up internal compliance programs, making sure that they're complying with you know, export control laws, anti-kickback regulations, privacy regulation, and, you know, any other regulations that could apply to the company, because these items will come up in due diligence with underwriters, and you don't want to have to play catch up with your underwriters or get them nervous in any sort of way or require a disclosure in the disclosure document for, you know, sanctions that the company's received and those sorts of things. So building up all of those areas takes some thinking ahead and planning. All the market prognosticators are talking about a recession on the horizon, but what's next for emerging companies looking to grow their business? What can they learn from some of the lessons of the past? You you were through the dot-com bubble. My guess is the Silicon Valley Venture Capital Survey was mailed out originally versus uh, emailed out, but uh, what should those companies learn from the past that you've experienced and can pass along to them? Well, I would just say to remember that some of the very best companies were formed during these economic downturns. And if we look at the last financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, you know, think about the companies that were formed back then, Airbnb, Slack, WhatsApp, Square, Uber, Instagram, Pinterest, all these companies were formed during that period, maybe some of whom were like literally laid off from, from companies that were doing big layoffs at the time. So it's a great time of innovation and opportunity. And so I'm truly excited by all of the companies that are being formed now out of necessity. I'm actually quite optimistic for what we're going to see in a few years after these companies get formed, get financed and and grow. From formation to IPO and beyond, Fenwick really has been the support system for tech companies that are changing the world. And Cindy's two decades of work in this arena is a masterclass on impressive deals. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Cindy Hess for being on the show today. She's worked on some of the most exciting transactions of this century, and it was amazing to hear her stories and insights. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.